0: Well, last week, you may remember that I mentioned that uh, when the coronavirus was declared a global pandemic and it was uh, becoming pretty clear that we were gonna have to do some things differently as a church, and I sat down at my desk and pulled out a Post-it and began to write down all the passages or verses that came to my mind that I thought, applied directly to a pandemic of sorts and so um, I've been working my way through those texts and I trust that you found these um, messages over the past few weeks helpful. Um, I've just been trying to take advantage of um, really an historic event um, and to um, capitalize on the fact that People's, uh, I guess, consciences are much more heightened, uh, much more uh, alert to the teaching of God's Word. And so, uh, some of these passages that we've looked at, uh, some more familiar than others, but hopefully, uh, you and those who've been tuning in with us have been more in tune spiritually uh, to biblical truth. And so, I've been just trying to take advantage of this opportunity to. Um, help people to see the the unshakable foundation that we have in God's Word when we when we find ourselves in the midst of uh, uh, unstable times. And so, one of the first uh, passages that I wrote down on that little post-it was Psalm twenty-three. And I've been thinking about doing it, thinking about doing it, thinking about doing it. And I thought it would be appropriate today, uh, as the last time, Lord willing, that we will have to meet apart like this. Uh, but this would be a good text to maybe um, uh, use as an exclamation point, perhaps, uh, to all that we've been learning about God's goodness, God's faithfulness uh, in trying times. And so, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me there to Psalm 23. And I'd like to read it for us, even though it is very familiar, I'm sure, to most of you. But let me just read it and pray, and we'll get into it. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever." Father, we thank you for this opportunity to once again open your word and to have you speak to us by your Spirit. We know that you um, inspired David to write these words that have become very familiar to most of us, if not all of us. And I pray that the familiarity that we have with this psalm would not uh, cause us to miss the richness of the truths that are here. And that as we meditate on these principles, on these promises this morning, that our hearts would be refreshed, our hearts would be renewed, and uh, Lord, that we would be uh, more in love with you as our great shepherd. When we leave here today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned already, today is Mother's Day and it's the day we get to celebrate our moms and express to them how grateful we are for them and let them uh, know how much we appreciate them for all the things that they do for us. Um, They birth us. Uh, They lovingly nurture us and care for us and raise us and tirelessly tirelessly serve us as our cook and our maid and our teacher, our tutor, our nurse, our chauffeur, our seamstress, our troop leader, our team mom. I mean, you name it, they do it or they've done it. And uh, one of the most heartfelt and endearing ways to praise and honor our moms is either saying to them or giving them something with that popular phrase, best mom ever. Some of you may have given um, your mother a card already or a mug or something, a sign uh, to put somewhere, best mom ever. Well, that's essentially what David was doing in this psalm, not to his mom, but to his God. He was praising and honoring God as the best shepherd ever. Now, as I read through this psalm, I don't think this was written by David when he was a young shepherd boy lying on his back in the pasture, musing on God being his shepherd. It seems to me and sounds more to me like a personal testimony written towards the end of his life in which he was celebrating what a good and faithful shepherd God had been to him through all of life's peaks and valleys, from slaying Goliath to sleeping with Bathsheba, from being a fugitive hiding out in the caves to a king living in a castle. This was a song of someone whose soul was thrilled that he was one of the Lord's sheep And he wanted to express his gratitude and appreciation for how well God took care of him, while at the same time, he wanted to build our faith and confidence in God to be the same kind of shepherd to us as he was to David. Well, it goes without saying that the 23rd Psalm is the most well-known, most beloved, most... Memorized and most quoted passage in the entire Bible. And this brief psalm with six simple, straightforward verses, just 55 words in the original Hebrew, is arguably the most refreshing and reassuring segment in all of Scripture. Its beautiful poetic words have ministered to countless souls in countless situations. Throughout the centuries, people from all over the world and all stages and stations in life have turned to this psalm to find comfort and peace and hope. Even though it was written some 3,000 years ago, there's no other psalm more relatable, more relevant to our lives than Psalm 23. It addresses the, the entire spectrum of human experience, and that's why it sounds equally appropriate whether it's read at a wedding or printed in the bulletin of a funeral. It applies to every believer, both young and old, to brand new Christians and seasoned saints alike, to those who are taking their first steps and following the shepherd, to those who have been walking with the Lord for many years, to those who are rejoicing, and to those who are mourning. And really, one sermon is not enough to plumb the depths uh, of this great psalm. Uh, Some of you may remember, I think around seven years ago, uh, we had a summer super study and I chose to preach through Psalm 23 and do a six week exposition of this psalm. And uh, I was toying with the idea of uh, repeating that series uh, here on Sunday morning starting today and going for the next five Sundays but then uh, I was looking ahead to uh, back to Romans where we left off and uh, the next passage is perfect for next Sunday as we gather back together again and get to experience the fellowship that we all miss so much. And so what I've done is taken six sermons and turned them into one and I know you're already getting nervous now. You're thinking, "Okay, we're going to not have Mother's Day lunch. We're going to have to have Mother's Day supper because we're going to be here all afternoon." No, we're going to do our best to uh, take uh, what was originally some 60 pages down to under 20. So, um, what I'd like us to do is just just to see this psalm in six sections, and each verse kind of stands alone. Uh, in its own section. And so verse one, we see the shepherd's person. Uh, Verse two, we see the shepherd's peace. Uh, Verse three, we see the shepherd's plan. Verse four, we see the shepherd's protection. And verse five, we see the shepherd's provision. And verse six, we see the shepherd's palace. Or if that seems too ostentatious for this analogy, maybe you could just call it the shepherd's pen albeit an eternal pen, as we'll see. So let's look first of all at the shepherd's person in verse one. David writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The word Lord there is the word Jehovah, the great personal name for God that was first disclosed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus three, and then repeated more than 4,000 times in the pages of the Old Testament. And in the Hebrew, this word Lord or Jehovah comes from the root word to be and literally means I am who I am. And that's exactly what God told Moses in the burning bush when he said, hey, who should I tell to Pharaoh and the people of Israel who sent them? And he simply said, tell them I am sent you. In other words, this refers to the fact that God's nature is timeless, it's self existence he's self-sufficient and unchanging. And this great God of the universe has stooped down to take care of you and me like a shepherd takes care of his sheep. Notice it says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, everyone in Bible times was very familiar with Sheep and with shepherding, because it was an integral part of the agrarian culture in which they lived. But few of us in the modern industrial age in which we live have had any exposure to sheep and shepherds. But you need to know there is no profession that more accurately depicts our relationship with God than a shepherd with a sheep. Now, you know, David was a shepherd, but it was God who originally came up with this analogy to describe his relationship with his people. And throughout the Bible, God likened himself to a shepherd and his people to a flock under his care. A shepherd lived with his flock of sheep 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks out of the year, and the task of caring for those sheep was unending. Sheep can't care for themselves. They require more attention, more assistance than any other class of livestock. And no other animal resembles us than sheep. Sheep are dirty, they're defenseless, they're directionless, they're undiscerning, they're prone to sickness, they tend to stray, they're easy prey. And so a shepherd was necessary and responsible to lead and feed and correct and comfort and guard and protect and rescue the sheep. And the survival of a flock of sheep literally depended on how well the shepherd did his job. Notice he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not In other words, God will meet all of our spiritual and physical needs. I mean, how could we possibly lack anything if the infinite God of the universe is responsible for taking care of us? Again, we need to keep in mind that God never promised to give us everything we want, but He did promise us, uh, promise to meet all of our needs. And so David wasn't saying here that God will give us everything we want, but because he is our shepherd, we have everything we need. Years ago, it was uh, common for uh, pastors to um, uh, promote their sermon in the Saturday Newspaper, whatever the sermon title was gonna be for the next day, they would print it in the newspaper. And so uh, uh, the story goes that a pastor uh, called the local newspaper years ago to give them his sermon title. And he said, my sermon for tomorrow is the Lord is my shepherd. And the reporter on the other end said, is that all? And to which he replied, that's enough. Well, the next day, the newspaper Read that the sermon title was This, the Lord is my shepherd, that's enough. And that's essentially what David is saying here that because the Lord was his shepherd, that was enough. That's all he needed. He was good. Even so, There are some of us who in spite of having such a wonderful shepherd, who provides us with the very best care possible and imaginable, we are still discontent, we're still dissatisfied and we're always looking for something more, always wanting something else and the grass always looks greener on the other side of the fence to us. Some of you are, I'm sure, familiar with the classic book written by Philip Keller, called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And uh, Philip Keller was not only a shepherd, but he was also a pastor. And so he brings some great um, imagery and some great, um, I guess, uh, uh, information about shepherding and, and really opens up uh, our understanding of what uh, Psalm 23 is really all about. And he mentions at the beginning of his uh, book about a sheep that he once had that no matter how well he cared for her, uh, she would always be looking for a hole in the fence, uh, a place that she could crawl under or jump over to go into the neighbor's pasture, uh, which was no way better than the pasture she had. And uh, he nicknamed her Mrs. Gattabout. And uh, sadly, Because Mrs. Gadabout never learned her lesson and she began leading others' sheep, her own sheep and other sheep astray, he had to send her to the butcher um, because of her waywardness. But um, that's a good example, uh, unfortunately, of some of us. We could be called Mr. or Mrs. Gadabout because we are always looking for a place to to go. Uh, The grass looks greener and God has given us all that we need and yet it's not enough, or so we think. And so the fact is that when we have the Lord as our shepherd, we have everything we need. We don't need anything else. So that's the shepherd's person, Secondly, let's look at the shepherd's peace. The shepherd's peace in verse two. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside quiet waters. Now at first glance, this appears that David was simply referring to how God provides us the most basic needs of our life, which is food and water. Um, In other words, God makes sure that we always have enough to eat and drink. Uh, We never no hunger or thirst. But if you look ahead to verse five, it seems that verse five is more where David focuses on God's provision of food and water. Here in verse two, the focus seems to be more on the peace and the rest, which results from having an abundance of food and water. When When a shepherd finds green pastures for his flock to graze in and quiet waters for his flock to drink from, they're able to experience peace and rest. And so the emphasis here in verse two is not on the sheep eating and drinking so much as it is on the sheep resting and finding peace. Notice he makes me lie down in green pastures. Don't miss that word makes. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Sheep cannot and will not find rest without the help of a shepherd. It's a known fact that if left to themselves, they will wear themselves out and eventually die of exhaustion. Sheep are Naturally, by nature, they are restless, they're anxious, they're fear fearful creatures, and they don't lie down unless certain things are true. And again, according to Philip Keller, the things that must be true of a sheep or for a sheep is they must be free of all fear. They must be free from tension within the flock. They must be free of flies and and parasites and other pests, and they must be free from hunger. And so only the shepherd can help with those matters and free his sheep from those things and and can provide the peace and rest that sheep so desperately need in order to thrive and be productive. And so David says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters or literally waters of rest. You may know this if you're uh, have any exposure to livestock, but sheep don't drink from fast-moving water. In fact, it's a, a danger to them. It's a, it's a potential peril to them because if they fall in, they'll be swept away in the rapids and because of their wool, if they haven't been shorn, they'll, they'll, just, they'll just sink and drown. And so a shepherd needs to make sure he provides quiet waters or waters of rest for his sheep and the the combination of green pastures here and quiet waters I think portrays the peace and the, the rest that God provides for his own in Christ and unfortunately we forfeit that peace and rest by running hither and yon following the devices and the desires of our own heart trying to find satisfaction in other things besides God. There is this hunger and thirst in the human heart that only God can satisfy or quench. I love the famous line from the church father, Augustine. He said this, quote, you have made us for yourself, God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I think practically speaking here, once we've come to know Christ, we need to pursue intimacy with Him by spending time with Him in His Word and in prayer. And so reading the Word and listening to sermons like you're doing right now is, is like uh, grazing on or drinking in Christ. And so we must have a regular intake of the word of God and we also must learn to wait on God and trust in God through prayer. They don't call it a, a quiet time for nothing. And hopefully you're in the habit of spending time alone with the Lord every day, having some quiet time by those, uh, in those green pastures and by those quiet waters. And so that's the shepherd's person and the shepherd's peace. Now let's look thirdly at the shepherd's plan in verse 3. David goes on and says, he restores my soul, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So even though our shepherd brings us to the best grazing lands near an abundant supply of water, we have a tendency to wander away looking for something better to satisfy our thirsty, hungry souls. We all can relate too well to that famous line in the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. This is the regretful heart cry of every honest Believer, regardless if you've been saved for a week or for, for 40 years. There's not a member of God's flock who hasn't wandered away from at some point, even if it was just in our heart and our mind. And that's when we need to, the Lord to restore our soul and to get us back on the right track spiritually. And so that's what David's talking about here, how he restores our soul. He brings us back to our original condition, if you will. Uh, for those of you that maybe restore old cars or restore furniture, that's what the idea is, is just getting that thing back to its original condition. So spiritually speaking, this refers how God ministers to his downcast and disobedient sheep. Psalm 42, 11, Why are you downcast, O my soul? 2 Corinthians 7:6. It says God comforts the downcast. Again, in Philip Keller's book. Um a shepherd looks at Psalm 23, he talks about this idea of a cast sheep or a downcast sheep. And sometimes sheep will lie down and they'll lay on their side to to rest or maybe they'll wanna scratch and itch and sometimes they start rolling and they tip over and they get stuck on their back and they can't get up. And they literally just lay there flailing their legs and if the shepherd doesn't find them in time and help them get back on their feet, they could die. Well, David himself experienced God's restorative work in his life. If you know the story of David and how he uh, had this uh, mercurial rise, um, very successful uh, king, and at the height of his um, kingdom, if you will, the height of his popularity, he committed adultery. He slept with another man's wife, and to cover it up, he killed her husband. And so he was guilty of both adultery and murder. And yet God, in his grace and his mercy, sent Nathan the prophet to restore him. And Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 are are beautiful uh, descriptions of of, of a restored heart. We don't have time to look at those right now, but write those down, Psalm 52 and Psalm 32. And if you're not familiar with those, I'd encourage you to read those. And and you see uh, David describing what it's like for God to restore your soul after you've sinned and wandered away from him. 1 John 1 9, we're familiar with this text. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God has some means or tools that He uses to re- restore our souls. He He uses first and foremost His word. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter three, verse 16, says all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so God uses his word to restore our soul. He also uses other believers. Galatians 6.1, if you see someone, it says, brethren, if you see someone overtaken in a fault, Restore them in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself lest you too be tempted. So God uses his word, he uses other believers and God also uses pain and and suffering, trials and, and affliction. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 67. Psalm 119, verse 67, there's a series of verses here about being afflicted. Psalm 119, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Hosea, chapter six, verse one, talk about someone who uh, wandered away from the Lord, Gomer is an example of Israel and all of us who are guilty of committing spiritual adultery whenever we sin and wander away from the Lord. Galatians, or excuse me, Galatians, uh, Hosea chapter 6 verse 1, come let us return to the Lord for he has torn us, but he will heal us, he has wounded us, but he will bandage us. And so God uses his word, he uses other believers, he uses trials and pain and suffering and affliction to restore our soul. And once we've been restored, God also works with us to make sure that we keep from going astray again. And I think that's what the next line is all about, where it says, he restores my soul and he guides me in the paths of righteousness. Literally, he leads me in the right paths. So, paths of righteousness refer to well-worn ruts that uh, are created by constant traffic. We've got one of those ruts in our backyard that whenever we let our dogs out, they immediately make a beeline around the bushes to the backside of the yard to see what they can bark at. And so there's this well-worn rut in the grass from constant use, constant traffic. And so what David is saying here is that the Lord helps us establish patterns of behavior that please him, godly habits, or or you could call these righteous ruts. He shows us how to live a right life. He shows us how to be the right kind of person. He doesn't just leave us to our own devices and desires, but he helps us get where he wants us to go. And so he leads us and he guides us to do the right things and to live a life that's pleasing to him that brings him honor and glory. And I think that's what's inherent in that last phrase. He says, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. for the honor of his name and the furtherance of his kingdom here on this earth. In the Hebrew culture, the, uh, a name was thought to reveal a person's character And so God acts as a shepherd not only to to prove his character, but also to preserve his reputation. Because a flock is a reflection of the shepherd. The sheep under a shepherd's care reflect that shepherd. And so God loves us and he cares for us. But lest we think too highly of ourselves, he wants to uphold the glory of his name. And while he values us, he values far more his own reputation. And so he does all of this for his name's sake, for his honor, for his glory. And so there's the shepherd's plan for our lives. Now let's look at the shepherd's protection the shepherd's protection in verse four. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now some of the paths that God leads us to or leads us down are not what we would choose, but we can be confident that he knows what's best for us and how to get us where he wants us to be in our lives. And so as we faithfully follow him, he will inevitably lead us all through dark valleys. The good news is it's usually in life's darkest valleys when we draw closest to him and he draws closest to us. From a shepherding perspective, during the, the summer season when the snow finally melts on the mountaintops, a shepherd will often lead his sheep to the prime grazing available on the higher ground. Unfortunately, however, the best route to get to these alpine meadows is oftentimes through treacherous ravines and precarious gulches with, which pose many threats to the sheep. And it's during these dangerous journeys when the sheep walk most closely with the shepherd, they, they huddle in close to the shepherd. And the shepherd provides the most intimate care and protection for the sheep. Notice how the pronouns change here in this verse. Everything was in the third person. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. But notice what it says I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David went from talking about the shepherd to talking to the shepherd. Again, a picture of the, the intimacy that we enjoy in these valleys of the shadow of death. Now, typically this is interpreted as a reference to death, the valley of the shadow of death. Um, but it's literally translated just the valley of deep darkness. So I think David had in mind not only death, sure, death applies here. That, that is life's ultimate valley, if you will. But it's also the, the trials that we must go through in life and throughout life. L- life is filled with all sorts of hard, scary situations which can be likened to valleys. Like when your employer says to you you're fired or you're furloughed or we need to let you go, clean out your desk or when the doctor says your baby will never be normal or when you find that stash in your son's closet or... Your teenage daughter tells you that she's pregnant or a doctor tells you you have cancer or your spouse says they want a divorce. I think these are all the things that are included here in the the valley of the shadow of death. But notice, he says, I will fear no evil or literally harm. Why? For you are with me. See, one of the characteristics of, of sheep is that they tend to be skittish, they tend to be scared, they're easily frightened, they're weak and timid animals, and so they're defenseless. And again, we're a lot like them. And the biggest problem that we deal with whenever we face trials and tribulations is typically fear. But David reminds us here that we have nothing to fear. Why? Because the Lord is with us. And it's his presence that overcomes our fear. And knowing that God is the one who led us into that scary place and that he'll be with us in that scary place to protect us and to guide us Through that scary place. Notice, even though I walk not in the valley of the shadow of death, but through the valley of the shadow of death, that trial, whatever it is, that scary place, that scary situation is really a tunnel. And there's, you may not see it, but there's another end. And you're going to come out the other end at some point. There's light at the end of the tunnel and knowing that it has a, a calming comforting effect in our hearts and our minds notice it says i fear no evil for you you are with me and not only are you with me but your rod and your staff they comfort me david mentioned here the two main tools uh, that a shepherd had to protect and direct and control and correct his sheep. The first tool was the rod or a club, which was used to fend off or beat down wild animals like lions or bears. And David mentioned that in First Samuel that he uh, used the 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 rod or a club to to fend off and kill wild animals that were trying to uh, attack and devour his, his, his sheep there's also the staff or the crook which we're most familiar with with the shepherd that shepherd's crook used to pry sheep loose from thickets or push branches aside or pull a fallen sheep out of a hole it was also used to control uh, and to count the sheep And so, the rod and the staff that David mentioned here are instruments of protection and correction that should make us feel safe and secure. In other words, our shepherd is armed to the teeth, and he has everything he needs to ward off our enemies and to keep us from wandering away from him. And so, we have nothing to fear, we're perfectly protected as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Verse five talks about the shepherd's provision. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. You may notice a a change in um, metaphor, perhaps. Uh, There's a number of commentators that suggests that David switch metaphors in in these last two verses, that in, in verses one through four, David likened his relationship with God to that of a shepherd and his sheep, and then here in verses five and six, David likened his relationship with God to that of a host and his guest. And I agree, it does appear that the scene changes from outdoors to indoors, from a Field setting with streams and paths and valleys to a house setting with tables and oils and cups. And again, that's why some say that this psalm is not just about the Lord being our shepherd, but the Lord being our host. And, and they will uh, say how, uh, like a gracious, generous host, lavishly cares for uh, their guests' every need. So God lavishly provides for our every need. And while all that is true, I think there's good reason to believe that David maintained the shepherd-sheep analogy throughout the entire psalm. Why do I say that? Because I think this psalm is not stationary, but migratory. In other words, the, the flow of this psalm follows the seasonal movements of a flock of sheep. And David was simply recounting a year in the life of a sheep. And in early spring, the shepherd would care for his sheep among the green pastures and the quiet streams near his home. Then, as the summer heat began to scorch the grass there, the shepherd would move the sheep to higher ground through the valleys to the prime grazing available in the mountain meadows. And before a shepherd would bring his sheep to those high places, he would go ahead of them and prepare the fields. In fact, the flat meadows in the mountains are referred to as the tablelands. And so. With that in mind, it makes sense when he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. A a shepherd would go and carefully inspect the meadow and clear the grazing area of poisonous plants and hunt down and, and, and remove any dangerous predators like wolves or coyotes or cougars or bears. And so David was simply picturing how God prepares a meal for his flock in the midst of our enemies. In the midst of our troubles and problems and pains and we can have a a feast and we can feast to our heart's content in complete peace and complete security even though we find ourselves oftentimes in a hostile environment or in hostile situations or around hostile people. And notice he says, you've anointed my head with oil. And again, some believe this refers to what a host would do when a a guest would enter their home after a long journey to refresh them from their travels. They would anoint their head with oil. But if David still had in his mind the image of a shepherd caring for his sheep, then the anointing of the head with oil had a different meaning. And you know this, that oil in the Bible was used not only to refresh guests, but also to anoint kings and priests for service, but also to soothe and to heal wounds. And so a shepherd would put oil on the scratches and bruises of the sheep to help them heal. He would also use oil as a bug repellent. And again, Philip Keller's book, uh, The Shepherd, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, is very helpful in, in, in um uh, expanding out this whole idea of of anyone who has ever cared for livestock knows how bugs can drive animals crazy and how it helps to to to, to somehow medicate them. And so a shepherd would pour oil uh, over a, a sheep's head and in his ears to uh, keep away the flies and and the pests. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that people and situations and events can bug us, they can drive us crazy, and that's why God anoints us with his Holy Spirit to help us to deal with them. And to produce in us the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Notice he ends this verse, he says, you've anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. That word overflow is a, is a Hebrew noun that means an abundance. It, and it comes from a verb meaning to be satiated or, or saturated or just completely soaked or drenched. And so what David is saying here is that in all, in spite of all the problems in his life, all the enemies that he faced in his life, he was drenched with blessings from heaven. And so we can go to school on David here and as we consider all the riches that we have in Christ that no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what we're facing, we can burst forth with praise and simply say, you know what, my cup runneth over. God is like that waiter or waitress at the restaurant I know you've kind of maybe forgot what that's like because you haven't been to one for a while, but right, that waiter or waitress, that attentive server who's just there every time you turn around, filling up your water glass or filling up your tea, and they just don't, they never let it get you know down below a, an inch, and they just keep filling you up, filling you up, filling you up. And so that's the shepherd's provision, and then finally, in verse six, we see the shepherd's pen. That didn't seem climactic enough, so I decided to go with palace, the shepherd's palace. And notice how the tense suddenly shifts here from present to the future. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so as David reflected on all that the Lord had done for him throughout his lifetime, it gave him hope, it gave him confidence about what he would do for him in the future. He was basically saying, hey, you know what? The Lord's been faithful to me in the past and he'll be faithful to me in the future. He'll be faithful to me to the end. We all know and love that Classic hymn, great is thy faithfulness. That one verse, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide strength for today and bright, what? Hope for the future or bright hope for tomorrow. Do you have that bright hope for tomorrow? Sadly, many People, including Christians, they're worried about tomorrow. They're fearful of what the future holds, which is our natural sinful tendency to to, to be anxious, to be fearful about what will happen to us in the future because it's all unknown to us. But here, David looked at the future with a sense of anticipation. Because he was absolutely convinced that no matter what happened to him, God's goodness and loving kindness or mercy would be right there with him just like they always had been. Kind of like two shepherd dogs, just kind of going along next to him, flanking him on his left and his right, directing his life, guiding him along at the command of the shepherd. And he knew in the end that God would lead him and take him home to live with him in heaven. And so in this final verse, I think what David was describing is how when fall came, the shepherd would lead his flock back home where they would spend the winter together in the safety of the pen. And this was a a triumphant journey home. And so that's why he says, surely. Not possibly or not hopefully, but certainly. Again, this wasn't just wishful thinking here. This was total confidence in the reliability and the trustworthiness of God. There was no doubt in David's mind that he would only and exclusively experience God's goodness and loving-kindness. Surely, goodness and loving-kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Goodness and loving-kindness are two of the Lord's premier attributes and they're often found together in the Psalms and in David's mind they were two inseparable components of God's comprehensive care of him. Goodness provides our every need. Mercy pardons our every sin. And so David knew that God would always be there to provide whatever he needed and to pardon whenever and however he sinned. And God promises to be there for you as well, to provide whatever you need and to pardon whenever and however you sin. Surely goodness and kindness will follow me, will shadow Me will relentlessly chase and pursue me wherever I go in every circumstance or every situation in life, in times of joy, in times of sorrow, in in, on the mountaintops, and, and in the deepest, darkest valleys. Again, if you need to, if it's helpful, consider goodness and loving kindness, or goodness and mercy are. Are, are the names of the, the two sheepdog, sheepdogs that God has assigned to you. And he's, uh, he's directing your life through them. And they are with you. They follow you around, if you will, all the days of your life. Not some days. Notice he says all the days of my life. Not some days, not... Not even most days, but every day of your life, both the good days and the bad days. Now, this is a good reminder that it's easy to trust God on the good days and in the good times, but it's not so easy on the bad days and in the bad times. But we need to remember that God never takes a day off. Lamentations chapter three. You're very familiar with this. I'm sure one of the most beloved verses in all of God's word. Lamentations chapter three, verse 22. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God's mercies are new every morning morning and notice how he says he ends here and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever not I might dwell or I hope to dwell or I've got my fingers crossed that I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord no I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and if you're familiar with some of, other, some of the other psalms or songs that David wrote, you know that he often talked about his desire to be in the house of the Lord. Psalm 27.4, one thing I've asked from the Lord, that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Psalm 84.10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And so once again, David was expressing how much he was looking forward to the sweet communion and the fellowship he would have with God in heaven forever. And notice he wasn't excited about where he would be in the future as much as he was about with whom he would be. Notice, he says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord. See, the best part of heaven is the fact that Jesus is there. And we'll finally meet our shepherd face to face and we will get to live with him forever in heaven and that lamb who was slain will become our Shepherd, eternally. It says that in Revelation chapter seven, verse 17. But the only way that this will be true of us, the only way that you will ever live forever in the Lord's presence is if we know him as our shepherd. And so I ask you today, because I'm sure that you know this psalm, it would be hard to find anyone, at least in a Christianized country like America, who's been exposed to the Bible for as long as we have, and it's just part of our history, it's part of our culture, it would be hard to find anyone who doesn't know this psalm, who hasn't heard of this song. But the question is, do you know the shepherd of this psalm? See, everything in Psalm 23 hinges on one little pronoun in that first line in verse 1. The Lord is, what does it say? My shepherd. See, all the blessings, all the promises that flow through this or flow out of this psalm only apply to those who have a personal relationship with the shepherd. And the shepherd, by the way, that David was talking about is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, Jesus is often referred to as a shepherd. He's the good shepherd in John chapter 10, verse 11. He's the great shepherd in Hebrews 13. He's the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 4. Excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 5. Let me read for you 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 talking about Jesus, how he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. In other words, he took our sins upon himself and endured the wrath of God against our sin. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And so in order to have a personal relationship with the shepherd, you need to admit that you have wandered away from him. That you're a sinner who Deserves to be punished forever in hell and to dwell in hell forever away from the presence of the Lord. But you must also believe that Jesus died on the cross in your place to pay the penalty for your sin, to provide a way for you to be forgiven and to be restored to a right relationship with his Father in heaven. And you need to commit your entire life to follow and obey Jesus as your Lord and as your shepherd. The Bible says if you repent of your sin and return to the Lord, that the Lord will rejoice over you like a lost sheep that has been found. He'll throw a party in heaven is what he'll do. And not only that, he'll surely guard your soul and safely guide you to heaven when you die and the lamb, again, who was slain for you will be your eternal shepherd. Your only other option is to be a sheep without a shepherd. That's how Jesus described people who... Didn't know him, didn't have a personal relationship with him. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, he saw the people and he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. There's nothing more hopeless, there's nothing more helpless than being a shepherdless sheep. A few weeks back, one of the precious sheep in our flock shared with me something that they had read in their quiet time and we both agreed that it seems especially relevant for the strange, scary season that we're all in right now with the coronavirus pandemic and I wanted to read it to you in closing this morning. This is from the classic devotional by L.B. Cowman, Streams in the Desert. This is the entry for January 14th, and uh, they were describing how a shepherd always walks ahead of the sheep. the, The shepherd is always out in front, and so here was the quote, whatever awaits us is encountered first by him. And the eye of faith can always discern his majestic presence out in front. This is the blessed life, not anxious to see far down the road, nor overly concerned about the next step, not eager to choose the path, nor weighed down with the heavy responsibilities of the future, but quietly following the shepherd one step at a time. That's a blessed life. And that's the blessed life that we lead as believers because we have a relationship with the best shepherd ever. And not just ever, but the best shepherd forever. Let's pray. God, we're grateful that you are the shepherd of our souls. And I pray, first of all, for those who fit into that category of sheep without a shepherd. That they're wandering through life helplessly and hopelessly, headed for hell, because they've never returned to you and repented of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ, would you grant them today repentance and faith? Lord, would this beautiful, powerful picture of what a great shepherd you are, woo them to want to come under your care, to want to be a part of your flock? And Lord, those of us that uh, you've already called out to be a part of your flock, we've heard your voice, and by your grace we've responded. Lord, may our hearts just be so filled with joy and comfort and peace and rest and hope and confidence, particularly as we look to the future. And while we look ahead, we don't know what's out there. But that doesn't matter because when we look ahead, we see you out in front leading us. And so grant us grace just to be faithful followers of you, taking one step in faith each day and taking each day as a gift from you and doing the next right thing to honor and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.